Almost 500 years ago now, John Calvin first published his edition of the two-volume Institutes of the Christian Religion that are famous for telling us who God is. Some of the most glorious stuff. How holy, how incomprehensible, how glorious. But it's also incredibly insightful as he tells us something about our own hearts. You see, unlike pop psychology in Hollywood that just keeps trying to drum into us, you are basically good. Follow your heart. John Calvin boldly stated, and I quote, The heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And nowhere do you see the fallout and the effects of this deeply rooted heart problem Then in the chapter in the book of Acts, we're going to look at today. So be turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to see some of this deeply rooted heart problem. But as you do, I want to tell you, this subject is so critical. This changed my life. Jesus saving me changed my life at age seven. Jesus explaining to me by his spirit and through his word and actually a biblical counselor. This issue of idolatry, idols of the heart was another Reformation game changer for Brad Bigney. And so this is such an important subject because it changes how you live life, how you fight sin, how you relate to others. I just want you to know I'm just scratching the surface here today on this. One message. So if you want to dig in and know more, and I hope you do because this is so important, then I want to commend and ask you to consider... Pick up a copy of my book. I only have one book that I wrote, but it's because this so changed my life where I unpack this some more. What does it look like to identify your own idols and then to begin to repent for a lifetime? And I would tell you, if you go to bradbigney.com, not the church website, it can be really confusing. I've been here 24 years and try to find a sermon series. If you'll just go to bradbigney.com, there are 11 messages on this. That you might say, I need to hear some more. And there's handouts that go with this book. There's a free study guide. There's some stuff that can help you continue to work this through in your own life. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Christianity has begun to be called the way. People started calling it the way. Maybe because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. But this is talking about Christianity. A great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation. This would be like a trade union meeting. So he calls them all together. He says, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods, which are made with hands. See, Paul's been teaching there in Ephesus now at the school of Tyrannus for two years, and it has started to make waves And it has started to impact the city. Because when people get saved, it's not just new thinking. They start living differently. It was impacting that city and his income. 
So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And that was not an exaggeration. Ephesus was the center of of Diana worship and Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world, that temple. But yes, all over Asia, there were other temples. And this was one of the top false gods, Diana, Artemis. Now, when they heard this, verse 28, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends, look at me. I love this. I keep telling you, when the gospel goes out, oh yeah, there'll be people that hate it, but there will always be people also, regardless of their status and position, who say, yes. These were significant rulers who were his friends because evidently they believed. They were converted. And they pleaded with him and said, do not go into the theater. The officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Here's what I also appreciate. Picture this, because in a minute it's going to say they chanted for two hours. This theater has been unearthed. They have discovered it and found it. It seated 25,000 people. It's not a little tiny thing. So you imagine, as I keep reading here in a minute, 25,000 people chanting and rocking the place for two hours, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Can people get worked up like that? Oh, yeah. So, verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was, assembly was confused. And most of them did not even know why they'd come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Look at me again. Here's what's going on. I, I also keep pointing out the Jews were working super hard to make a distinction between them and Christians. But the Roman Empire just kept saying, whatever. And this is an effort. So the Jews actually pushed Alexander forward and said, please get up there and talk and make sure this rocking crowd knows we are not them. So they put Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Because basically the Roman Empire is saying, we don't care. You still have this same God and you're not following our God. They cried out with one voice for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry, inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give give an account for this disorderly gathering. Now, if you're wondering, is he in favor of Christianity? Is it? No. 
He's in favor of not losing his job. I hope you realize the Roman Empire did not tolerate chaos. They would send soldiers in. And to be considered a Roman colony was a real feather in the cap. You had tremendous benefits. Ephesus was a Roman colony. But if you want to act like pagans, they'll shut it down and you lose that privilege. He wants his job and he's reminding everybody else. This city benefits from being a Roman colony. Let's not lose it. If we go crazy here and they hear about it, everything could change. That got the crowd's attention. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, what can we learn about our own hearts from this passage today? Here's the first thing worth noting. Number one, the idolatry of our hearts and the good news of the gospel stand in direct opposition to each other. These two things are not compatible. You cannot just add Jesus to yourself of already existing gods, he will not be one of many gods. That had already been clearly understood. The gospel wasn't just going out, you guys. The exclusivity of the message of the gospel and Jesus being the only way had been clearly heard because they'd been there for two years now. And the lives that had been changed by it had begun to not keep doing what they used to do. And it's impacting the city, its income, and its reputation and fame for Diana and Artemis. And this is how it has always been. It's not just come to Jesus as your Savior. It's when you do that, you must turn away from everything else you were trusting in and worshiping because it's Jesus as Lord. That's why Paul said the same thing similar in 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. He's talking to the Christians in Thessalonica and he says, Oh my goodness, you became examples. Word has rippled out of your example of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But even as I talk this way, if you're sitting there, I hope you're not thinking, oh, but Brad, you're talking about cities like Thessalonica and Ephesus and way back then. Oh yeah, there were idols literally on every corner. There's a sex God and a war God and a harvest God and a work God. And you could see it. There were temples and altars. It's not our problem here in America. Is America guilty of idolatry? Oh, In fact, here's what I would propose to you. The danger of idolatry in America is greater, not less, because their idolatry in that day was more overt and explicit. Ours is covert. And therefore, it flies under the radar, and often we don't have an awareness of it or think we even need to be concerned or dealing with it, even Christians. And so I think it makes it more dangerous here, not less. Listen to me. You can say you believe in God. You can say you believe in the Bible. You can say you believe in some Christian teaching and even go to church. But if there's something else other than God that functionally is more critical to you for your happiness, your sense of well-being and worth and security and purpose then that something else is your true functional God. 
Regardless of what you keep saying with your lips. And remember, idolatry is not just building your world and life around bad things. It's taking good things and inflating them to try to do for you what only God can do and making them God things. And you don't have to just jump into idolatry. You're like, well, I've never done that. It can happen subtly and gradually. It is a shift. I hope you realize our human nature is never... When you just drift and shift, it's never towards more Jesus and towards grace. I find that it's always away from and towards legalism and putting your hope in other things. Shift is always away and drift is always away and the danger is constant. Which is why the hymn writer got it right when he said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. This is a problem for us for a lifetime. And so we've got to be aware of it and have a battle plan and think about this. Nobody, nobody just wakes up on any given day and says, you know what? I'm right now, today, I'm going to start living for the approval of my husband or for the approval of my best friend. Or I'm going to, I'm going to shift. We're not aware of it and we don't give notice to everyone else around us. We don't wear a sign that says, watch out. I always think about it when I, when I get behind a dump truck on the interstate or whatever. It always has that thing, stay so many feet back. I don't know how many it is, but we don't put a sign that says, watch out. Stay back. You cross me now? Whoo! Because this is what I'm now living for. And it just creates massive confusion between us. And all we know is there's more heat. There's more conflict. There's more confusion. But you wonder why? Because the shift is subtle and gradual. Often we don't know it. And we certainly don't announce it to those around us. No one says, I'm not going to just love my children. I'm now going to build my world around them. No one begins to say, you know what? I'm going to now make success at work synonymous with my personal worth. It just happens. And it happens most often with good. Is work good? More robustly. Yes. It's a reflection of, of us being created in God's image. We are workers. It's good. Our children good. A good gift. Yes. And it's a shift taking a good thing and inflating it to try to be a functional God thing. To do for you what it was never designed to do. And when you do that... It messes up your vertical relationship with God because he's a jealous God. And so all of a sudden your relationship with him cools down and you wonder why you don't feel close to God. Idolatry. Your horizontal relationships heat up. There's just so much more friction and heat because what you don't realize is now you are placing greater demands on people around you. Often they're unspoken demands And you're crushing them. They can't do what you want them to do for you. Or they're in your way. And the relationship is really, really heating up. And Romans chapter 1. Excises and lays it out on the table. This heart problem. Don't turn there for the sake of time. I've taken you there many times. But this is a critical passage. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 and following. It's not the place that we should just go To prove a point biblically that homosexuality is a sin. Yes, it is. But it's not a worse sin than any other sin. This passage was meant to show us... Raise your hand, every single person. Get it up. Romans 1 is talking about you. Romans 1 is talking about me. 
homosexuality was just exhibit A as an example of how we take God's good design. Is sex good? Better than that. Yes. And twist it and say, well, if it's good, it should be good any way I want it. All right. You might not be guilty of that, but can you take work and it's good and say, I'll twist it. Now I'm going to get it to do this. I'm going to take kids and do this. I'm going to take. We all put your face in that passage. You're there. He intended to show us what we are guilty of doing. And it's actually the very basis of our sin problem between God and others. He uses the word exchange three times. We don't want what he intended us to have. The glory of God. Living for the glory of God. We want to live for something here. We don't want the truth of God. We've got God's truth. He wants to tell us how life really works and how he designed us. But like, nope. And we believe the lie. I can be autonomous. I can be satisfied. I can be self-sufficient with right here, right now. If I get it right and get enough of it. And then we don't want to use the things he gave us that are good in the way he designed them. We think we can twist it. Exchanged, exchanged, exchanged. And we all are guilty of doing this. Let me illustrate it this way. This whole good thing, but when it's a God thing, now it's a destructive, frightening thing. Difference between a dream and a nightmare. If you're like me, my dreams are are those things where when you wake up, you wish it wouldn't end. It's like, oh my goodness, that was a dream. Wow, I was there. It was so real. There's people and places and There is only a subtle difference, do you realize, between dreams and nightmares? If your nightmares are like mine, it always involves people and places that are good and pleasant. It's just that they've been distorted and it's really bizarre. It's how it's put together and bent. It's some woman from South Carolina that was in my church and her face is looming. And it's a place I had a happy memory, but now it's twisted. And then there's someone here. It's so weird. Sometimes I'll say to Vicky, that was so weird. And I'll name the people that were in it. What makes it frightening? The proportions. It's distorted and it's put together in a bizarre, bent out of proportion. And so what was pleasant is grotesque, frightening, and destructive. That's what idolatry does. We step onto the path with something good, thinking it will achieve our dream of being happy, joyful, secure, and it becomes a nightmare because we've taken something and it gets twisted out of proportion and becomes frightening and destructive. So let me unpack for you some of the nightmare of idolatry a little more. Point number two, what we think can give us security and joy only leads to further anxiety and fear. God knows us well, you guys. You read so much, of, so much of the, he knows we're frail. He knows we're but dust. He knows we're fragile. He knows we're but a vapor. We are fearful, anxious, unsettled creatures. He doesn't intend for us to, to, to exacerbate that. He wants us to be settled in him. Less fearful, less anxious, more joy, more peace. And so none of us step onto this path saying, I want to be more anxious, more fearful, more unsettled. We think it will lead to greater joy. And, but it's the opposite. Intense. So here's what I want you to recognize. Intense emotions. Escalating emotions. And idolatry run hand in hand. When you've got emotions off the chart. When you've got like, wow, was that me? Often idolatry. Is under it, behind it, a part of it. 
Look at verse 28 of our chapter today because it shows the intense level of emotions that are associated with idolatry. Verse 28, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, that word cried out is the Greek word kratso. That's an onomatopoeia word. It means it sounds like what you're actually doing. Kratso. It was a scream. It, it, gets, it gets used in the Gospels to refer to demons when they cry out. This is an unsettling cry. And the Greek word for wrath is a word that indicates intense feelings of anger, frustration, and fury that begin to boil and bubble until they boil over to the point that a person will react abruptly, even in a violent way at times. Listen, if you want to get a greater awareness of this, then understand escalating, intense, out of proportion, where did that come from? Emotions and idolatry run hand in hand. Why? Because of what's at stake. It's a worship issue. Romans 1, that passage is not just describing sin. That's a worship passage. It's describing false worship. So it's intense because we are talking about what I prize, what I treasure, what I worship, what I trust in. It's just the wrong thing. So if you cross me, if you get in my way, if I feel threatened by you and how you're relating to me about this, watch out, watch out will react with extreme levels of fear, anger, anxiety, depression, or all of the above. That's why Scotty Smith says, paying careful attention to emotions that grow to near neurotic proportions is one of the most effective ways to identify our specific idols. Whether manifested as spontaneous outbursts or chronic life patterns, these exaggerated emotions can provide oh, this is insightful, can provide an unobstructed view into the cathedral of our idol worship. So don't say, oh, that's not really me. I don't know what that's about. I haven't been sleeping well. My allergies are being bought. Folks, in most cases, we love to use the word bizarre. Well, that's bizarre. She's got a chemical imbalance. We push too many people into that category. When you see what seems like bizarre, it's like that is way out of proportion to what just happened. Trust me, if you could see their heart, an unobstructed view of the cathedral of their worship and the altar they'd built, it would make sense. You just threaten something that is no longer just a good thing. It's a God thing. And it happens to all of us. Trust me. Have you not had this? There's times where like it's like I'm having an outer body experience. That's me. Ooh, look at him go. And I'm like, what is going on? But it's, I'm in the middle of it. Whenever that, whenever that happens to me and I say, why did that just, I went from zero to 60. I don't just say, huh, huh, whatever. I'm like, what have I been thinking? What have I been believing? What have I been wanting? How have I been processing life? Those emotions, trace emotions back to the heart and say, what have I, what have I been really prizing and treasuring and worshiping and building my world around instead of saying, ha, that makes no sense. And let me help you with this whole issue. Let me give you a prayer that I believe God answers all the time. 
You know, one of our favorite complaints is, ah, I don't feel like prayer works. God doesn't answer. I, you know, I prayed, 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 prayed. Let me give you one that he loves to answer. Psalm 139. So when I find myself reacting in a way that's way out of proportion to what just happened, whether it's explosive or for me, sometimes it's implosive. I just want to shut down and quit. What is going on? Pray this prayer. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Make it a well-worn path from you to the throne of God. Search. You know, we tend to say, we got to figure out what's wrong with her. You know, that meeting, I'm the one that went off, but she makes me so. Nobody makes you anything. They expose what was already there. Pray. Search me. We tend to say, get her, oh God. Change her. Stop her. She upsets me so. Now start with you. Search me, oh God. And know my. Test me. Try me. And know my what kind of thoughts? Anxious thoughts. Why am I so anxious? And see if there be any. I put in your bulletin offensive, but some translations it's stronger. Wicked way in me and lead me. And you see if God isn't pleased to answer that. Now, you can't do this on the fly. I'm not talking about like just, oh, God. Get quiet. I'll usually have to get quiet. I don't mean for an hour, but just unhurried. And I'll get a piece of paper and I'll say, God. Sometimes it's just a pattern that I've seen, you know, for some weeks. Sometimes it's an incident. I'll just say, God, what is up with me? Help me. I don't want to continue down this path. What is going on with me? My heart. Test me. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. Help me. How have I been connecting the dots in a way that this is how I'm responding to people? I don't want to continue this way. Oh, my goodness. He's helped me, helped me, helped me, helped me. It's a prayer he loves to answer. I've said it before, but I love, I love it when unbelievers. So we're talking about something here today because we all live in a fallen, broken world. And whether you're a Christian or not, we all have this longing to make much of something. We're in his image. And so we are worshipers. And because we're created in his image, we also all have a longing to, to know that we're significant, that we have purpose, that my life matters. We're not like dogs and cats and house plants. We're in his image So every single human being knows something of this struggle we're bumping up against. And so I love it when unbelievers, they don't give good solutions. But oh my goodness, sometimes they articulate so well the problem. Because they're experiencing it also. I want to talk about three areas that even our world puts its finger on and says, Oh my goodness, watch out. Watch out. Have you noticed how this happens? Here's the first. What happens when your work becomes idolatrous? Again, it's work good. We're creating his image. That's why I hope you realize there's something satisfying about if you manage, managing, creating order. Maybe you're artsy. When you create something, you draw something, you make something. Even you dig in the earth and you garden and you grow things and you fertilize. That is all because we're created in his image. Work is good. It's very satisfying when you work and do well what he's gifted you to do. But then there's that line that you can cross over when you allow work not to just be what you do, but who you are. It's my total identity. Then it becomes very toxic. 
few years ago, the New York Times, New York Times ran an opinion piece that was written by a woman who'd been a CFO of a major investment bank. She was at the top. She had that corner office. She had arrived, right? So she's got the good life. This is what people think will do it. And in the article, it was just filled with regrets. Here she is being very transparent. It was filled with regrets as she wrestled her way back through, in fact, what she said, what happened to her. Notice, not what happened for me. I had this opportunity. All the articles, like, it just happened to me, and it was horrible. And she's trying to sort it out. She says this in the article, you work like a dog. You get up, you go hard, and you make money, and you put, here's what she said, you put everything else second in your life to work. Believing that if you work, 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 it will pay big dividends in the latter half of your life because then you'll be able to do whatever you want because you have all the money you need. The human heart thinks that all the time. And then she said this, what a lie. What a lie. She didn't say it because she didn't get it. She got it. And she said, what a lie. She couldn't kick back and enjoy the good life because here's what she said. And I quote, inevitably, when I left my job, it, operative word for idolatry, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I didn't know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. Oh, that's idolatry. That's the danger. That's the dream going nightmare on you. Work had swallowed up her entire identity. She thought work would serve her to get what she wanted. But when it became godlike, it consumed her and robbed her. In the article, she talks about the pain and the cost. Not the money she made and the pleasure, pain. She said it cost her her first marriage. And she didn't say he was a terrible guy, it was a good thing. She had regrets. She said, it cost me my first marriage. Then she said, there were no time for children and now I wish I had children. And she said, I was on my phone day and night. And I just started, I stepped onto the path of saying, I'll just work a little on Saturday and Sunday to get ahead for Monday and just check out some of those emails. And, and she said, before I knew it, I was working seven days a week, nonstop, all through the weekends, because that's what it took to get to the top and stay at the top. Despite all the success and the good life it was supposed to usher her into, because she's pretty young. This was 20 years she did it. She's not 80. She's in her midlife with regrets. She ends the article this way. She says, I am only now learning how to manage a life. The article, the tone of the article is filled with brokenness and she's disillusioned because the dream became a nightmare when the good gift of work was distorted out of proportion in a way that God never designed. So maybe you're sitting there and saying, yeah, those people need to be careful. I know it's not about work. It's about family. That's what I'm building my world around. Oh, what about family? What about children? Is family good? Yes. Are children a gift? Yes. But what happens when your children 
become idols. You make family an idol. You make children an idol. Is it any less destructive? Here's what I think is funny. Idolatry is idolatry is idolatry no matter how you dress it up. I know little children look cuter than work. No. Why not build my world around this little chubby thing? Oh, don't. Oh, don't. It's no less destructive even if you dress it up and it looks better. And you just think, oh, but it's family. Oh, but it's children. Horrific consequences. If you go from, don't don't hear what I'm not saying. Oh, man, mothers and fathers, love them well. Sacrifice for them. Lay down your lives. Make it a top priority, what you're thinking about, that you're parenting. It actually has something to do. They can't raise themselves. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But do not let it, similar to work, consume your whole identity. I'm just one big mother. Mother should always be a role that you have for a season. And there should always be more than mother. I'm more than a mother. I'm more. News alert. If you're Christian, you were a child of God first. And then, oh, it takes a partner to have children. You have a spouse. Hello. It's not just children. I hear it a lot with young ladies. It's almost like it's a badge of honor. We've never left the kids with anyone. Well, that's pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You're training them to be just anxious and freak out with anyone but you. But guess what, mama? You like that. They're only comforted with me. Not good. They need to learn that, that they, can, they can be with other people. And you need a date. You need a date out alone. Not with them still throwing food on the floor and they're still your total focus. We're on a date, but I had the kid. Leave the kid. Not alone, but with a babysitter. <laughs> and then go on an overnight away once a year. Literally, find someone you trust that you think you can... And remember that you have a marriage. That is the only one flesh relationship the Bible talks about. Not children. Marriage. This is not like, oh, sh- oh she's amazing. No, she's idolatrous. That's what she is. You know, my wife watches all those snap shows, you know, who killed who. And they love to say, she was the best mother. Those children were her. Either life or world. I'm like, well, that's why I killed her. It was like, doggone it, I would like to have a date. And if I can't, I'm going to kill her and find someone that will go out with me. Because I know we got kids, but for crying out loud, could it be about something beside the kids sometime? It's like, it's no less horrific. And never mind the impact on your, your horizontal relationships around you. Mothers, fathers, it's what it does to you. Paul Tripp talks about this danger in his book, Lost in the Middle, which, by the way, I don't know if we have it in the Resource Center, but, oh, it's a good book. Because when you step into idolatry, whether it's work or kids or what, you'll hit a season in life where you will feel lost. That's why he calls it Lost in the Middle. Because in the middle of life, that's when you don't have the athletic prowess you used to have. Your body is starting to fall apart a little more and you can't do. So if you lived for your body and image and health, and you're lost. If you lived for the kids as they start to launch, and we hope they do, that's a win. Go, little bird, fly. You'll be lost. 
at work as you're no longer the latest, greatest flavor. And young kids are coming in with a, a CAD 3D thing that they're like, bing, bing, boom. And you've got a slide rule. You're like, I'll get there. I'll get, I'm good. I used to be the best. Hang in there. And they let you go. G-O. Because they're paying you so much. You've been there so long and other people can do it faster. It's not just disappointing. It's, what's the operative word? Devastating. Devastating. Paul Tripp says this. Joanna thought she'd grown in her faith. Problem was, she'd forgotten who she was. And it was not long before her identity in Christ was replaced by another identity. Joanna's children became her new identity. They gave her meaning and purpose. They really did give her hope and joy. The problem was that they were not sent by God to do any of that. Joanna lived vicariously through them. And the more she did, the more she became obsessed with their success. Although Joanna was just as faithful in her personal devotions and public worship, God was no longer at the center of who she was. All it took was little Jimmy to mess it up. And I, I like to say, if you're like, no, my children are fine. Just have another one. You keep having children long enough, God will give you one that brings you to your knees. All it took was Jimmy to mess it all up. With all his inner turmoil, Jimmy didn't make a very good trophy. Being with him often meant unexpected confrontations and public embarrassment. The girls were forced to live in in the wings of Jimmy's drama. And they didn't turn out to be trophy children either. Now that they were adults, Joanna was lost. In their tumultuous launch into adulthood, the kids not only broke Joanna's heart, but they also robbed her of her identity. She felt like it had all been for naught. When she looked in the mirror, she felt like she didn't know the person she saw there. Listen to me. Love them. Yes. But do not worship them and build your world around them and allow your identity to just be sucked into and consumed entirely. Because when they launch, and they're supposed to, Or how they launch, and it doesn't look like you thought it would launch. Or the fact that they don't launch can get disturbing after a while. It will be devastating rather than just difficult or disappointing. What about the thrill of romantic love? What about love? God made us in his image and therefore we want to be loved. And we actually want to express love to someone else. And we... And we long for relationship. These are good and normal things. God actually is a relational being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in relationship and fellowship. He's not a force. He's a person. And we're created in His image. So this is normal that we long for relationship and to connect and to feel significant and to be loved. But what if romantic relationships becomes idolatrous. And I hope you realize it has. As long as there's been people, folks, people have been connecting, people have dated, people have had boyfriends, girlfriends, but it is at an epidemic, unhealthy, twisted nightmare proportion of people who, it's like you're nothing if you don't have a girlfriend. You know, it's Facebook now. We used to date and break up and it took weeks or months for someone to figure out, oh, they're not together anymore? No. And now it's like everything is so public. I'm in a relationship. Yay, I'm a person. 
I'm not. Boo. And I better get another one in there fast because you're nothing if you don't have a relationship. You're not, you must have a boyfriend, girlfriend. That validates you. And then, listen, it gets worse. Epidemic levels of people either trying to kill themselves or threatening that they will kill themselves when the boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up. What is going on? We used to have a more of a life. I'm working a job. I'm playing football. I like music. And I have a girlfriend. And I'll see her Friday night. And praise God there wasn't a smartphone. I didn't talk to her till then. Let that settle in, girls. I didn't talk to her till then. You're like, what? The poor guys today. My heart goes out to you. It's, it's texting all day. It's been two hours and he hasn't answered. I said, how was your day? We have other things on our mind, girls. It doesn't mean he doesn't like you, but I am not going to be in constant communication with you. This is exhausting. Go live a life. See a friend. Laugh. Do something without me. But it's just like, you are my whole world now. And we actually can connect in constant, unending, unhealthy ways. Both of you should have more of a life and think, all right, I'm glad that he or she's in my life and I'm going to enjoy this, but there's more to me than this. It's idolatrous is what it is. Ernest Becker was an anthropologist. That's someone who studies people for a living. Anthropologist who in the 70s wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book titled The Denial of Death. Here's what I think is interesting. Ernest Becker is not even a Christian and he does not believe in God at all. And yet as he watched, he recognized and I love that he articulated it. The fact that we don't believe in God now and there isn't this relationship with God has caused a huge problem. And he said one of the first solutions that people have tried to turn to to fill that void is romantic relationships. I think it's interesting. He doesn't point us back to God and say, so we need God. Again, it's one of those things where he just says, oh, look at the danger of this. Well, yeah, Ernest, because people long to be in relationship and love. God was meant to fully satisfy that. And when you take him out of the picture, uh uh-oh. Humans will go somewhere else. Here's what he said. Listen to this quote. Once we realize what the religious solution did. So he's kind of saying, now that we see the fallout, we realize, uh uh-oh, that was really doing something important. Once we realize what the religious solution did, we can see how modern man edged himself into an impossible situation. He still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. If he no longer had God... How was he to do this? And he says, as he watched, he noticed that so many people tried to do it with romantic relationships, a love partner. And then here's what I really like. When an unbeliever uses a word that is dear to us as Christians, that's what he does. Listen to this quote. He says, no human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. That other person can't take the place of God and so constantly love you and never fail you and never let you down. They can't bear that. They can't do that. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him or her, inevitably they reflect earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want? 
when we elevate the love partner to the position of God. Oh, listen to this. We want redemption. Nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults. Do you see what he's saying? You loving me convinces me I'm not as bad as I thought I was. I'm counting on that. I know I have faults. I feel imperfect. I feel unlovely. I feel you loving me overcomes that. But when you cease or you fail, I'm thrown into a tailspin. We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness. Needless to say, human partners cannot do this. Redemption can only come from outside the individual from beyond. And that's what they also love to do. They'll leave it really vague. They get right up to the edge and will not define it. He doesn't even say, so where would I find this beyond? We're outside me, but, oh, folks, we've got such good news. Yes, we long for redemption. Yes, it can only come from outside of us beyond. And it's not fuzzy. He has a name. Jesus. 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 You were meant to be in relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and to be so settled in his love and to know that all your faults have been forgiven and you know how bad you are. But he gave himself for you anyway, and he'll never break up with you. He'll never turn away from you. He'll never fail you. He'll never. Oh, there's your hope. There's your assurance. There's your settledness. It's all very specific, not generic. It's like. He adopts us, gives us a robe of righteousness. And think about the verse that says he calls us his own and he calls us by name. It says you're mine. That's what we long for, isn't it? Who wants me to be? Who, who, who do I belong to? He says, you're mine. And you settle into that. Oh, oh. So point number three, here's the solution, you guys. A greater love for Jesus is the only hope for keeping every lesser love in his proper place. Here's what this means. If you're married, guess what? You will love your spouse best when you love them as second, Jesus first. You will love your children best when they're third. Notice that? Jesus Spouse, kids, when they're first, even that license plate, Indiana did it a while. Kids first. No, not kids first. Our world swings from one extreme to, please don't abuse kids, but it's not kids first. When you're settled in Jesus, oh, then you're able to love people instead of needing things from them. Because biblical love is giving for the needs of another, expecting what? When your, quote, love is driven by idolatry, you need a lot back. Woo! I need a lot from you, actually. And it just screws up relationships and fills them with conflict. I know looking at our hearts can be ugly and discouraging. So I don't want to leave you there. I want to point you to the beauty and wonder of a Savior, Jesus, who loves died for you, rose again for you, would love to be with you now and is coming back for you as your bridegroom. That's your hope. That's the place to go. See, right here, 
Dr. Luke wrote two books. He wrote the book of Acts and he wrote Luke, the gospel of Luke. Right here in Acts 19, we've got the apostle Paul, that it was possible that if he hadn't had some friends, he could have been torn apart by the fury of a raging crowd with their idolatry. God spared him. In Luke 23, you've got the fury of a raging crowd who wasn't crying out, great is Diana. They were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And God the Father did not intervene. He was torn apart, put on a cross, because that's the purpose for which he came, to die in payment for that, those faults and that sense of unworthiness and that sense of, that's why he came, to die for us. And to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So unbeliever, come to Christ today. Come to Jesus. If you say no to Jesus, your heart will just keep leading you down this path. And you will experience a lifetime of frustration and disappointment. All the while saying kind of, why, why am I not satisfied? I thought that would do it. And why does everyone fail me so? Why, why, why? Your whole life will stay that way, my friend. Without Jesus. But I have a word for believers. It's almost the same word. My word for unbelievers is come to Christ. My word for you as believers. Come back to Christ. Now don't hear that. You mean I lost my salvation. I got to get saved again. No. But you've wandered. Can you get saved. Put your trust in Jesus. And then drift. And begin to start to try to find your satisfaction in other things. Oh yes. Come back to Jesus. Spend greater time knowing him, loving him, appreciating him, delighting in him. And you'll be able to let up on some of the significant others around you. You'll be able to do life so much better. That's why Paul said in Hebrews 12 to fixing our eyes on the love partner. No. Who? On Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. You don't just start with Jesus, my friend. You have to stay with Jesus continually to do life well. Start, stay. If you've drifted, come back. Come back. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And thank you for not just giving us a Bible that, that is superficial, that talks about fruit issues. But a, but a word that gets below the surface and goes after our hearts and reveals our biggest problems so that we could truly, truly repent on a level that is life-changing. With such freedom and joy and purpose. And able to persevere and not be so devastated by the circumstances of life and the people around us. Oh God, help us. Use us, like the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, to so be living so differently, not perfectly, but differently. That those around us would say, whoa, what is up with this? This is changing this is impacting the culture. These people are not chasing after the same things we do. They are not wanting the same things we do. They are not prizing the same things we do. What is this? Use this for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.